You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, we live in a world that's at war. Uh, it doesn't take uh, a lot to see that. You just need to, you know, sort of lift up your eyes and look around, and it's very obvious that we live in a world at war. Uh, you could just look to Ukraine to see that. Uh, you could look over to Israel to see that, or depending on how you count, uh, you could look at the uh, over a uh, hundred other armed conflicts happening right now around the world to see that we are a world at war. And uh, you know, this isn't a uh, this isn't a unique time, but, but a normal time. So when I say that, that we live in a world at war, I'm not saying because it's this sliver of time in 2023 that you're alive. I'm just saying it's kind of what life east of Eden has been like. Uh, in their book, The Lessons of History, Will and Ariel Durant, they uh, write a chapter called History and War. And this is how they start that chapter uh, on history and war. They say war is one of the constants of history and is not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, that's a lot of years, right? Of those last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, Since the fall, Uh, Since that moment when our first parents took that bite of that forbidden fruit, since the fall, we have just sort of loved to fight. Uh, We're just a fighting people. You just see war everywhere uh, east of Eden. Now, when we talk about war, uh, we're talking about the propensity to fight sort of on the macro level, right? Typically, we're thinking nation to nation when we think of war. But it's no better when you get it down to a micro level. And not nation to nation, but now we're talking person to person. And here's what I know about people. When punched, we want to punch back. Uh, when insulted, we want to insult back. When hurt, we want to hurt back. I was uh, recently chatting with a friend of mine when someone asked him, uh, what do you do best in life? Like, what are you uniquely good at? And his response was actually a little bit too quick. Uh, he said, uh, getting revenge. And I'm like, yeah, all right then, all right. But, uh, but we all feel that, right? That's the world that, that we live in. Uh, we live in a world that is an eye for an eye type world. It's an angry world, a tense world. Everyone sort of has their uh, finger on the proverbial trigger. It, it's that type of a world that you and I occupy. So this isn't just a nation to nation issue. Uh, it is also a person to person issue. We are in a world at war. But that war goes beyond even the person to person level. It, it's also an internal thing. The war isn't just out there somewhere, it's also in here. We all feel that conflict in here. Uh, Gallup recently released a new report showing the amount of adults who've been clinically diagnosed with depression or anxiety in their lifetime. So you see the category? This is an adult who at some point in their life, they have been clinically diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And those people, that that category has risen by over 50% in the last eight years. That's amazing. There's a lot of war happening in here. And those who currently are diagnosed and being treated for depression and anxiety rose 100% over those last same eight years. A lot of conflict in here. It's not just out there, it's also in here. When teenagers were asked if they personally know of any teenagers who have attempted suicide, right at half of teenagers, 13 to 17 years old, right at half of all teenagers respond with yes, We live in a world 
at war. So in light of that, it's no surprise that our text is probably the most famous Christmas text uh, in all the Bible. This is like kind of the one you go to when you want a Christmas text. And this Christmas text has what is probably the most popular Christmas phrase in it. You see this in Luke chapter uh, 2 verse 14. The angels announce this to these lowly shepherds, glory to God in the highest. And then here's our phrase, and on earth, peace, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace. We, we live in a world that needs some peace, doesn't it? That we live in that type of world. We are a people who need a lot of peace. And that word peace is a pregnant word in the Bible. It is full of rich biblical meaning. So here's what I want to do today. I just want to hold up this word peace for us uh, and just hold it up for us to see and enjoy. What does the Bible have to say about it? How does the Bible interact with this word? What does the Bible show us about this word peace? And I want to do that by asking four questions about that word. Four questions about that word peace. Here's the first question. What is peace? Like when we're reading that word in the Bible, what is it? It's a big word in the Bible. It shows up over 375 times throughout the scriptures. So you're just automatically seeing this is an important word in the scriptures. And five times in the Bible, uh, this is how God is described. He's described as a God of peace. So we're just instantly learning uh, right off the top from the scriptures that peace is not just sort of a state of being. Peace is first and foremost a person. It is God himself. God, God is a God of peace. Now, the Hebrew word for peace, if you're going to go back in the Old Testament and find everywhere, the, you know, your Bible, the word peace shows up, uh, it's the word shalom. That's the word you're seeing in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word for peace. But our word, peace, the English word, it just can't really bench press the whole weight of that word shalom. That word shalom is a rich, robust word. So when we use the word peace, just think about in your common vernacular when the word peace shows up. We typically mean by that, that there's an absence of conflict, that there's a ceasefire between, you know, enemies. We mean these sort of things. Maybe we mean it's this nice inner feeling that we have. We mean those sorts of things typically when we think of peace. But that word shalom is, is bigger than that word. It's heavier than that word. It, it means to be whole, undivided, uninjured. It's a word to describe life with everything bad taken out and everything good put in. Shalom, this rich biblical word for peace, is where everyone and everything flourishes. That's shalom, where everyone and everything flourishes. Listen to Cornelius Plantinga describe shalom. He, he describes it like this. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. 
That's a good way to think about that word shalom. It's the way things ought to be. It's universal flourishing. Everyone and everything is flourishing. It's, it's a place of wholeness and delight. It's life without the parasite of sin attached to it. It's life without the corruption of sin distorting it. It's life without the pollution of sin staining it. That's shalom. It's a, it's a way of being that every relationship is, is right and reconciled and other-centered and everything is overflowing with, with joy. That's shalom. And that was the life our first parents enjoyed in the garden. Think Genesis 1 and 2. It was satisfying and rich and wholesome. Everyone and everything was flourishing. But it was the life they lost because of sin. Genesis chapter 3. Now, this is the reason that one of my favorite ways to define sin is like this. Sin is the vandalism of shalom. It's a good way to think about what sin is. It's the vandalism of shalom. Sin breaks shalom. It twists what ought to be into what ought not be. That's what sin is always doing. It's, it's twisting God's good design into something uh, bad and perverse. That, that's sin. It's the vandalism of shalom. It breaks shalom. If you want it uh, in an illustration, uh, I'm going to pull from way back. We're going all the way back to the early 90s in a movie called The Grand Canyon. And it provides a good illustration of the breaking of Shalom. Uh, an immigration attorney tries to bypass a traffic jam. So just see the picture. You've got a wealthy immigration attorney in his nice car. He's got a traffic jam. So he pulls off the highway and he starts cruising through uh, late at night, uh, cruising through this neighborhood. And his shortcut takes him down streets that are progressively darker and more deserted. And you can just see where this is going, right? So here he goes. He's in this expensive car uh, in the worst of, uh, on the worst street in the worst neighborhood when his car stalls, of course it does. And uh, so he's sitting in his a car and he calls a tow truck. Uh, but before it arrives, he's surrounded by four or five guys that are in a gang and it's about to go down. And when it goes down, it's not going to be good for this guy. He's in that sort of a predicament. And then just in time, Danny Glover, you remember that guy? Danny Glover shows up. He's the tow truck guy. He shows up with his tow truck and uh, he, he pulls in front of the car. He backs up. He starts hooking this car up to uh, his tow truck. And predictably, these gangbangers are not having it. Uh, they are not letting Danny do, do the thing here. So Danny Glover takes the leader of this uh, group of, uh, you know, this little gang. And he takes the leader aside and he says these five sentences to him. He says, man, this world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude sitting in that car is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than the way it is here. Welcome to life east of Eden. Everything is supposed to be different than the way it is here. Shalom. That was the life our first parents enjoyed in the garden that was vandalized by sin. But friends, that is the very life God promises to bring back. The very life God promises to restore. Again, I love how Cornelius Plantinga summarizes the hope of the Old Testament prophets. Listen to how he says it. 
It says, these prophets kept dreaming of a time when God would put things right again. They dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out. Rough places made plain. The foolish would be made wise and the wise humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower. The mountains would run with wine. Weeping would cease and people could go to sleep without weapons on their lap. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Lambs could lie down with lions. All nature would be fruitful and benign and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all nature and all humans would look to God. They would walk with God. They would lean toward God. And they would delight in God. That's the future that God has promised. He has promised to bring back that shalom that those Old Testament prophets longed for and talked about. And listen, that, that dream for shalom isn't just in the heart of Old Testament prophets. That, that dream for peace, that dream for shalom lives in every single human heart. Because every human heart has been stamped with the remembrance of Genesis 1 and 2. When shalom was a, was a reality. When things were as they ought to be. Not like they are now, like they ought not be. Right? That, that dream lives in every human heart. So the question of the Bible is, how will God do that? How will God bring that peace, that shalom? How will God fix this broken world? How will he get this world back to the way it ought to be? How will God do that? Well, on a night 2,000 years ago, the angels in Luke 2 unveiled the answer. God's remedy for what sin has vandalized God's remedy for everything that has ever terrorized you and I. God's remedy, his plan was surprising. He had a surprising plan to bring peace into this world. His plan was a baby. That, that was his plan. It's probably just not the plan I would have gone with, but this was God's plan to bring peace into the world. It was a baby. So picture with me for a moment. Picture the battle between uh, all that is good in this world and all that's bad in this world. So uh, on one side, you have Satan. And you've got all the shalom vandalizers over here. You've got all of his big bullies that just break and distort all that God has made. You've got Satan and all of his army of big bully shalom vandalizers. That, that's one side. Then over here, you have God. And God's got his army. And now they are, they have come to the battle. Satan has marched out his army of, of shalom vandalizers, these big bullies. He's got them all lined up, ready for battle. And here's God on his side. And God doesn't send an army out to the battle. God sends one person out to the battle. God inserts into the battlefield, sends out into the battlefield one thing, a little baby. That's, that's God's plan. That this is how shalom is coming. God's answer to the shalom-destroying bullies of the world is not to get a bigger bully. It's to get a baby. Born in Bethlehem in a little manger. That's God's plan. That this is how God is bringing that shalom back. The way things ought to be. Question number two. Where is peace most important? Where is peace most important? So we have the promise of peace, and that, that promise is going to come through the promised one, the serpent crusher. That serpent crusher, Jesus, that little baby in a manger, is going to be the one that brings about peace. But where do we need that peace? Where is peace most important? 
Where, where do we need peace first and most in our life? Answer, with God. With God. That, that's the most important place of peace. It's with God. Charles Wesley was right in his lyrics. Heart the herald, angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth. Peace on earth. And mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. There is no peace on earth without that last phrase, God and sinners being reconciled. Shalom will never be enjoyed. Things will never be restored in your heart, in my heart, in this world. They will never come back to the way they ought to be without this first happening. God and sinners coming together and peace being made right there. Uh, Let's uh, maybe address it this way. What do you think is the biggest problem in the world? Imagine someone comes to you, they have a piece of paper, on top of that piece of paper is, define for me, tell me about the biggest problem in the world. Now you get 10 minutes to write your answer. What what would you say about the biggest problem in the world? There's a lot of really bad problems in the world. There's a lot of big problems in in the world. There's a lot of great problems in the world. Uh, Is it poverty? Is it a lack of education? Is it disease and sickness? Is it war? Is it starvation? Is it moral disintegration? I mean, all those are serious big problems. Are those the big problems? Like if you can just get this one fixed, does everything else become fixable? Is it, is it that problem, the great problem? Are one of those it? But according to the Bible, none of those are it. All of those are problems, but none of those are the great problem. All of those problems are just symptoms of this one great problem. According to the Bible, our great problem is we are at war with God. That's the problem. We are at war with God. Our greatest problem is Romans 10 or 5.10. We are enemies of God. Hostility now characterizes the relationship we have with God. That, that is the greatest problem in the world. Hostility with God. We are at war with God. And that hostility runs in two directions. It goes from us to God. Uh, human beings are not born with blank slates. I know we love to think about babies as like so innocent, but they're not. They're not, Right? They're born like this, Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. We are born now with with minds set on the flesh, hostile toward God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Sin, everyone born since Genesis chapter 3, that, that sin has so distorted the desires of our heart that we are now born with hearts that instinctively disdain God that instinctively hate uh, anyone ruling over us, that instinctively leap towards self-rule and autonomy. Our hearts are just naturally inclined to do that because of sin. And listen, we, we can hate God in kind ways. We don't, a hatred of God doesn't always mean that we're going to be mean toward God. It, it can be, actually be in kind ways. Uh, the, the scriptures show us this, that we can betray God. We can hate God by killing him. Right? That's the mean way to do it. That's the Pharisees in the New Testament. Or we can hate God by kissing him. That, that's the kind way to hate God. That's Judas in the New Testament. But the point is, we come out of the womb hostile toward God, hating God with an instinctive disdain to God. We come out of the womb wanting to be God, not wanting to worship God. So the hostility flows from us to God. But the bigger problem is it flows from God to us. 
We have hostility coming in that direction. It's not just that we have a problem with God. Our biggest problem is that God has a problem with, with us. Now, why does God have a problem with us? The Bible tells the story of God's problem with us like this. The first chapter is that God is perfectly holy. He's righteous. He's just. He cannot tolerate sin. Right? God is perfectly holy. The second chapter is that we have sinned against God. The Bible views sin as rebellion or treason against God. Rather than submitting to God's rule in our life, we want to jerk God off the throne. We want to sit on the throne and we want God to follow us. It's, it's treason. That, that's what sin is. It's rebellion against God. So God's perfectly holy. Chapter 2, we've sinned against God. And here's chapter 3. Our sin has rightfully provoked God's wrath. Rightfully. So God's wrath is not undeserved. It is deserved. We have rightfully provoked God's wrath by our sin. Uh, listen to how Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, Here's how we're born. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were, here's God's problem with us, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I can't read that phrase, by nature, children of wrath, without a chill going down my spine. That is Paul saying that because of our sin, if something doesn't change, we will one day experience the unrestrained, nothing held back wrath of God that will lead to our total undoing forever. That's what Paul's saying there. And friends, that is our greatest problem. It is your biggest problem, my biggest problem. And if war with God is our greatest problem, that means that peace with God is our greatest need. Your greatest need. My, my greatest need. Peace with God. Our, our greatest need is for peace to replace the hostility. Our greatest need is to regain the relationship that we have lost with God. And that's one way of talking about the, the Bible's main question. The Bible's main question is, how will enemies ever be friends again? How can peace replace the hostility between God and people? How will that ever happen? Can it happen? And the Bible's answer is, yes, it can happen. How will that happen? Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, Paul announces, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the good news of Christmas. God's solution to our greatest problem is a little baby. And that little baby grew into a man who lived perfectly in our place. And that man was pinned to a tree. And there on that tree, he, he died for our sins. On that tree, all of God's wrath that was going to ruin us and undo us, it ruined him. It undid him. Jesus did not come in, his, in the first advent. 2,000 years ago, he didn't come to settle the score with us, to, to get us back. Right? He didn't come to settle the score with us. He came to settle the score for us. This is why Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, gave his life for his enemies so that his enemies could now enjoy peace with God. 
That is the good news of Christmas, that peace with God is possible. Let me just tell you that one more time. This is the good news. This is, this is what Christmas is all about. Peace with God is possible. It is possible. There is a way to the peace that you need, and it's through Jesus. It's through Jesus. So how do we get this peace? That's question number three. How do we get this peace? If this is the greatest thing we need in our life, how do we get this thing, this peace? Well, Luke 2.14 points us in the right direction. Glory to God in the highest, the angels announce. And on earth, peace. There's our word, on earth, peace. Now, who's going to get that peace? Here it is. Among those with whom he is pleased. Peace is for the category of people that this is true of. Among those with whom he is pleased. So you have to be a part of the, the people that God is pleased with if you want the peace of God. So, so how do we become a part of those people? How, how do we go from an enemy of God to someone God is looking at and saying, I am pleased with them. I love them. It's no longer wrath coming toward them, but my warmth and welcome is now coming toward them. How, how do we become a part of that uh, group of people? Well, th there's really two options that human beings have explored. There's two ways that all the religions of the world are going to point us toward. Here's the first way. We work to achieve peace. That's one way people have tried to, to get this peace. We work to achieve that peace. So, so this way is all about you getting to work. You, you earning the pleasure and the peace of God. That, that's the option that most people in this world sort of explore. Is you work to achieve it. You do enough to feel like to yourself that you're okay. And surely God will be okay with you. It's, it's working to, to, to achieve God's pleasure. And by the way, this is how every religion outside of Christianity approaches God. This is how every religion outside of Christianity tries to get the peace of God. They work for it. This is how Mormons try to get peace with God. This is how Muslims try to get peace with God. This is how every other religion tries to do it. You work to achieve it. And here is my fear for many of us. That it is the sort of way that we have imported, just brought into the way we relate to the God of the Bible. That here's how we're going to achieve peace with God. We're just going to get about the, the work of, of achieving it. Uh, Martin Luther was uh, really insightful when he said, this is really the default of the human heart. This is why every other religion sort of teaches you work to achieve it because it, it so resonates with our hearts as a, as a sinful human being. That Here's how we're going to get what we've lost. We're going to get about working for it. He goes on to say this. There's not one in a thousand who does not set his confidence upon his works, expecting by them to win God's favor and anticipate his grace. So this is just sort of naturally what we import into Christianity now, right? Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to depend on our works to achieve the grace and the peace that we so desperately long for. So that's option one. We work to achieve it. The problem, according to the Bible, is if you work to achieve it, the hostility just grows, Here's option number two. We open our hands and we receive peace by faith. We open our hands and we receive peace. Peace was never meant to be achieved. It was always, according to the scriptures, meant to be received. Peace with God doesn't come from our doing. 
It comes from the doing of another, the doing of Jesus. That's where peace resides. Romans 5, 1 again. Therefore, since we have been justified by, not your works, not you getting about doing a lot of things to achieve it. We have been justified by opening up the hands of faith, justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul is announcing to every enemy of God. He's announcing that any enemy, doesn't matter how much of an enemy you are, how many bad things you've done as an enemy, that any enemy coming with the empty hands of faith, trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, can have peace with God. That's what Paul's announcing. Any enemy opening up their hands by faith can receive peace. And not just the absence of conflict, but the restoration of a wholehearted friendship with God. This peace, it's the most important peace you can have. So can I just ask you the question, are you at peace with God? Do, do you have peace with God? It is the most important question of your life. It doesn't matter if you get every other question right in your life. If you get this one wrong, your end will still be ruined forever. Do you have peace with God? Is there still hostility between you and God or has peace been made? Have you surrendered to God? Right? Coming to him with the open hands of faith, saying to God, I am not trying to achieve this. I am receiving the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God, rescue me. Save me. Has peace been made with you and God? It's the most important question of your life. Question number four, and we'll end here. What does peace, this peace that we're talking about with God, what, what does this peace with God do to a person? What does peace do to a person? Here's what the scriptures tell us. Peace with God makes us peacemakers. Peace with God makes us peacemakers. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed, he said, whole, happy are those who are peacemakers. Those who have received the peace of God that are now reflecting that peace out into this angry, tense, trigger-happy world. Happy are those people. Blessed are those people. This is Jesus saying that, listen, every time we make peace, we are offering our world a tiny preview of the world to come, where shalom resides, where everyone and everything is going to flourish. We're giving tiny little previews of that every time we forgive, every time we crucify bitterness, every time we let go of those grudges. I love how Paul encourages us toward this in Romans chapter 12. This is like really the peacemaking verse, right? Here it is in Romans 12. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I, I love that verse because it's hopeful. Live peaceably with all. That should be the, the goal of every peacemaker. Everyone who has tasted the, the, the peace of God. This is the goal. We want to live peaceably with all. That, that's the goal of our lives. That's what we want to do with our life. So it's hopeful, but it's also realistic. If possible, if possible, Paul knows that there are some conflicts that cannot be resolved like right now today. There are some things that will not be resolved right now. And there's even some conflicts that won't be solved on, on this side of life. It's going to have to wait to the next life for some conflicts to be solved. So, so he knows that he's realistic in that. If 
impossible. Uh, but it's not just hopeful. It's not just realistic. It's also weighty. Uh, look at what Paul says to us. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So Paul's saying there's sometimes it's not possible, but if it's not possible now, either right now or in this life, if it's not possible now, Paul's saying it cannot be because you're refusing to forgive. It cannot be because you want to hold on to that grudge. It cannot be because that root of bitterness has just grown up in you and you won't crucify it. It cannot be for that. It might be because they won't own their sin. It might be because they won't repent of their sin, but it can't be because you're holding on to these things. It can't be that. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The longer I'm in ministry, the more I'm convinced that this is the area where people are most likely to draw a line and say, God, I will not go across it. I will not do that. I will not forgive them. I will not crucify this bitterness. I will not let go of that resentment. I will not let go of that grudge. God, you can ask anything of me, but I am not doing that. Those people know what they did. And if they want reconciliation, this is what they're going to do. They're going to have to crawl to me. They're going to have to grovel a lot. And they're going to have to beg for some peace. That, that's the only way we're going to get there. And friends, that is anti-gospel. It's anti-gospel. It's anti the way God has treated you. The gospel is the good news that God moved toward you when you were not a friend, but an enemy. He moved towards you when you were an enemy and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he made you friends. That is the good news of Jesus. At the heart of the gospel is peace. At the heart of the gospel is reconciliation. We have been brought back into God's family, adopted into his family, made friends again. And, and friends, when we taste that reconciling peace of Jesus, we give that peace to others. So will you bow with me? And I want to give you a moment to talk to the Lord and to let him talk to you. Most of us in here right now are harboring bitterness. That root is in us and it's growing. We've latched on to grudges that we don't want to get uh, let go of. Unforgiveness is just, it's there in us. Who are you harboring that bitterness toward? We just ask the Lord to give you a name, a face, just to show you that. It probably isn't going to take you long. Who are you harboring resentment toward, withholding forgiveness toward? Now, whoever that is, will you ask the Lord for help today? God, will you help me today? God, I don't want to be bitter. God, I don't, I know that love is not resentful, according to 1 Corinthians 13. 
So God, I, I don't want to be resentful. God, I don't want to be the type of person that withholds forgiveness. So God, would you help me today? God, would you help me? And then, will you ask the Holy Spirit for one thing you could do today to be a peacemaker in that relationship? One way you could bring the gospel of peace into this relationship, th that one in your life right now where it's just hard. But one way that you can do that work, that reconciling work, that peacemaking work. And friends, whatever that is, whatever the Lord shows you in this moment, do that today. Not tomorrow, but do that today. And that sort of work is always going to be impossible until we're at peace with God. So friend, if you don't have peace in your relationship with the Lord, this is your day. You can leave with the hostility gone, with peace being had between you and God. Uh, right now in this moment, you can throw your life upon Jesus, just calling out to Jesus in the best way you know how. God, here is my life. I'm trusting Jesus. Save me. And friend, you can walk out of this room today at peace with God. So would you do that there where you are? Father, we love you. We are thankful for the reconciling work of Jesus, the gospel of peace. And Lord, I pray that all of us would walk out of here today at peace with you. And God, would you make this Christmas season one that, that we get to function like peacemakers. We get to take that peace that we have received and we get to give that gift to, to, to people, to family, to friends. God, would you help us do that? And it's in the good name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen.